What is going on, everyone? It is Matt here, and you are listening to another episode of Composer Code, the podcast dedicated to cracking the code on what it takes to become a successful video game composer. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with James Landino. The way I got connected with James was actually pretty cool. He sent out a tweet basically offering his advice, expertise to anybody who wanted to break into the industry. Um, I thought that was a really cool gesture, and of course, I reached out to him and asked him if he wanted to be on the podcast. After that, I checked out some of his stuff and was just blown away by his diversity and talent. He has some incredible credits, not the least of which was Amplitude HD, the HD remake of probably my favorite rhythm game of all time. So many rage quits on that game. I can't even begin to tell you. We talked about his perspective working on a team like Harmonix, how to break into the composition space, and some of the biggest mistakes that beginners make. And I will just tell you, spoiler alert, it's the uh, the P word and uh, not procrastination, the other P word. Anyway, I had a super insightful conversation with James. He was a delight to speak with. Please check out his music, especially his work on Sonic after the sequel. Um, I thought he captured the spirit of the uh, the early Sega Genesis games perfectly. Anyway, enjoy this conversation with James Landino. Long story short, I actually did not like music growing up. Like my mom and my family forced me to play piano from age five and was like, you have to play piano until you graduate high school because that's the rule in the house and we want you to be well-rounded. Fine, but I, I disliked piano. I disliked really all music I heard. And I think... I forgot for some reason, you know, my parents, uh, it was my 11th birthday and they got me s- some software called MTV Music Generator. It, it, <laughs> nice. it, it wasn't really a DAW. It was, I guess it is a DAW technically, but it wasn't really like that. It's for people who don't know music, but just, you know, want to, it simulates the experience of it like right. a DAW. Yeah. And so I got it. I toyed around with it. I was like, meh, whatever. This is kind of lame. And I kind of didn't think about it. And then, Two years later, I started playing this music rhythm game called Flash Flash Revolution, which hmm. is an which is a flash uh, based version of Dance Dance Revolution. <laughs> nice. And so I, I was I played a lot of that game, and then I saw one day, um, like, hey guys, like we're gonna start submit, we're gonna start accepting community accepted song submissions. And me being the being the gamer I am, I was like, whoa, this is really cool. The community can contribute to a game. I've always wanted to be in a game. And that was kind of this quick spiral into investment into writing video game music, at least as a hobby. I had always, from that point onward, been only writing game music, um, or at least that was my primary focus, was to write music for video games because I started getting more and more invested in that uh, medium. Gotcha. So that, that makes total sense. So uh, you mentioned before that the reason, you know, one of the reasons you love video game music is that it's just so different from every other type of music. Specifically, what is it about game music, uh, like in detail, do you think makes it so different and makes it so attractive for composers? I think the biggest thing is when you compare to contemporary mainstream music, uh, just for lack of a better word, um, you know, most people's inspirations are from the reality that we're in. You know, I'm inspired by the color I see or the trees or inspired by my personal experiences and inspired by relationships, whatever it is. And the beautiful thing about video games or any medium like film is that your inspirations, while they can refer back to reality, you're actually directly referring to, in my mind, you're referring to the fictional world that you're writing for. And I think that's so cool because essentially there's a whole new context of 
sound that I think doesn't always apply in mainstream music. Yeah, I would say when I was around 16 or 17, I was like a junior in high school, that's when I decided like, okay, I want to do this. I want to see this through the end. I want to try writing music for video games as a career. And so I eventually got accepted to Berklee College of Music nice. in Boston, um, which I believe both in Seeing the Rain and Taylor that you mentioned earlier, I think they also go to Berkeley too. They they do. It. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I believe they right. both did. Yeah. Yep. I think insane. I think Carlos tweeted that he's about to graduate. Oh, terrific. Like he's got just a few more weeks, I think. And then mm -hmm. Taylor graduated. But yeah, that's that's really cool, man. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Berkeley at the time, I think, was about to develop a video game program or at least some kind of minor. It has like an established one now. But like when I got there, it was just becoming a thing. Um, so I spent a lot of time focusing on my craft on video game music there. And meanwhile, at college, I was still working on other, like, I was working on a few fan games. Uh, there was a popular Sonic fan game that I worked on called Sonic After the Sequel that became a very large uh, portion of my portfolio that would eventually lead me to work outside of college. Um, it was really good, by the way. I checked that. I'm a huge Sonic fan and just Masato Nakamura and the Sega Sound awesome. team in general. And man, your stuff really captured the spirit of it. I was I was really impressed. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So though, so that fan game especially was kind of the catalyst for developers, I think, to take notice that okay, this guy has some sort of legitimacy, or like we really like his sound, whatever. So after college, um, I was able to network my way into a QA position, into harmonics, um, and th so on and so forth. Um, I was able to get introduced to the audio team there, saw that I had a lot of potential, and they got me on board as an audio guy um, for Amplitude the next year. That's so cool, man. That's so cool how it went from community submission to fan game to getting uh, you know noticed by developers to getting you know positioned in a team like like Harmonics, which you know rock band. I mean, hello, that's exactly that's, that's incredible. It's like a dream project. Exactly. So for me, especially, especially in Amplitude, because that was one of my favorite rhythm games growing up as well. It was like, you know, I worked on community f games that were also rhythm game music. So my whole, a lot of like my, the games that I worked on or at least played was that sort of stuff. So it was kind of a nice kind of coming of age moment where like, oh, wait, now I'm actually the guy making the game. And it's just, it's a cool moment. So to get to that position, you know, I think is a very coveted position, you know, of working at a, I would argue, probably a triple A game studio doing cool. audio stuff. What would you say was like the biggest determining factor for you to be able to do that? Was it, um, you know, a certain kind of networking you were doing? Was it building relationships? Was like, what was the secret sauce, if anything, you know, that you think helped you get to that position? I think... Most people would say networking, and I would agree with that. But I think the really big thing that I played really well was I tried to always, for better or worse, I always tried to be different from the rest of the crowd or the community. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is I noticed a lot of people in my game audio community were focusing on orchestration, focusing on like film-esque music, or some kind of that. And I was one of the few people I could think of who was very much in the trenches of electronic music and how that applies to video games. So 
I always use that as a strength to say like, hey, I'm the electronic video game composer. I'm not like I made that point to tell people because they immediately knew something that I was different than the majority of others that maybe would approach them or get to know them. Absolutely. I think that that helped a long way. And that applied, you know, to, to the Sonic fan games that, that I made that applied to the other indie games I did, worked on. That also applied to Harmonix because they for Amplitude, they needed the go to electronic guy. And that's why they really want me in that project. That makes total sense. And and I and that's so true, because I noticed when I was listening to your stuff, I checked out a lot of your stuff before the interview and you do have like a very distinct electronic sound and like an electronic proficiency. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That like you yep. can tell that you've been around the block with those genres. And I think that's super cool that you've kind of niched yourself into this thing to this sort of uh, this persona, I guess you might call it, where it's like we know that if we need electronic video game music, you know, we're going to call James. So I think that's, exactly that's really cool. Um, and I'm curious kind of what you're doing now. So I'm actually not even sure. Are you are you freelancing now? Or are you working with a team? Like what does a day in the life of you as a composer look like today? So today, um, simply put, I am an independent contractor, full-time freelance, uh, which I'm very actually happy about. I'm very happy where I'm at currently. So I'm working on, I would say, give or take 10 or so different indie projects at this current time ranging from you know small scale little you know one track beats to bigger projects that would be like you know 10 20 songs for like a mid mid-tier budget sort of thing so it's a nice spectrum i'm having a lot of fun working on different kinds of projects um i wish i could talk about them more but i can fortunately yeah totally it is. totally understand yeah. um NDAs. but but yeah so i'm in now this cool position where and i'm not just a composer at this point because at the same time, after college, I had been developing a live stage persona or brand, I suppose to speak, as a DJ that remixes video game music as well. So now I'm in this nice position where I have this composition presence as a game composer. I have this also this live presence as a performer, but it's all under the same umbrella of electronic music and video games. That is so cool, man. That is really, really cool. Like it's uh, it's really a diversification of not only uh brands but also i imagine income you know because you have certain income that probably comes from the live dj uh set and then you have certain income that comes from the compositions um, exactly i think a lot of people listening to this and myself included i mean my dream my, my dream right now is to be really in your position of being the independent contractor the freelancer mm -hmm. working on different projects indie projects of all shapes and sizes um, what are some tips, some general pieces of advice that maybe you could offer to me or others like me who want to be in your position, maybe to avoid some of the mistakes you made early on, or just like keys to success to being a freelancer? Cause I've heard it's a tough, it can be tough. Um, you know, being a freelancer, you got to really, you got to be a hustler. So I'm curious what advice you have, if any, uh, to those who might want to aspire to be like in your position. So I think there's a lot of ways I can answer that, but I'll try to summarize with the big bullet point is that I think it's very important for people, for, for anyone who wants to do this, that you have to be true to yourself. You have to be open with yourself and be, be willing to be open and vulnerable with new people you meet, especially when that applies to networking. And I think a big, big part of that also is 
you know, how it, not just part of stand, not just standing out, but also how do you come across as an interesting, personable guy? You know, and I'm not saying don't be something you're not, because that's kind of the opposite of what I'm saying. I think a big part of it comes down to how can you present yourself in a way that people want to get to know more? Because at the end of the day, networking is really just making friends. And I've made so many friends both through the internet and through real life. And, you know, I would say the majority of the work I'm doing now are through those relationships that even some of the friends I made back when I started writing music when I was 13, they're now also professionals in this industry 10 years later and working together on projects. So it's always about making friends. And I think in terms of making new friends with that in mind, it's just always about getting people to like you. And you know what I'm saying? No, absolutely. I mean, I think I've been listening through to a lot of the free GDC talks on the mm -hmm. GDC vault uh, for audio. There's some really good ones on there. And, and there was a panel where, you know, um, they talked about, and this is just a recurring theme of just like, right. we would so much rather hire someone who's slightly less talented, but a joy to work with mm -hmm. than a super talented jerk. And exactly. that just seems to be the predominant, like that just seems to be the prevailing view in all of, you know, indie games and game audio in general at large is just like, nobody wants to work with a jerk. So um, I think that your experiences just kind of reinforce that. Culture is so, if there's one thing I learned at Harmonics is that culture is so important to everything. Because if you're, if you're on a team of people and there's one or two people who just don't really fit with the vibe of the rest of the team, it can really put a damper on not just your day-to-day -day experiences, but just also the development of a project. Did you experience that working at Harmonics? I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to air dirty laundry or name <laughs> names, but I'm curious how the, how you found the culture there. So... I would say, yes, I did experience that. I think for me, I came during a uh, weird time where I came during a weird time where Rock Band was starting to kind of fizzle out in terms of its popularity. So I got there right when they started having layoffs one after another. Hmm. I think I, got, I think I went through like five or six layoffs before I was hit personally. And I think, you know, naturally when you have so many layoffs that kills morale yeah for and sure, that killed that sure. kills culture so it became more than ever that the only way i think people were able to continue making good games beyond just their own talents was trying to salvage a culture and make something out of that you know what are some ways that you kind of like landed on your feet after that happened i imagine it's a lot of sort of the side projects that you had going on but i'm curious mm -hmm. kind of how you bounced back from that um, you know, cause that could be a big shock and that can really put some people, uh, that can really put some people out, you know, if you don't have a backup plan. And that's kind of the thing because I bounced back kind of immediately, uh, because I kind of knew going into harmonics just from all the homework I've done with the game industry that probability wise, I'm going to get laid off for, you know, X reason. So I knew that my, my time was numbered theoretically. So I saved up a lot of money as much as I could during my time there. I continued to work as many projects. I tried to be a freelancer while at Harmonix, which, you know, can be very dangerous and bring yourself out. But in the long run, it was worth it because it gave me such a platform to easily transition into this lifestyle that maybe mm -hmm. if I hadn't done that, I might be in much more trouble. I love to geek out on is just 
getting inside the heads and the processes of, of composers and how we're all different and how we all compose differently. So just to start out, I'm curious, um, what are some resources that when you compose, you just can't live without? And this could be hardware, like a MIDI keyboard, software, like a DAW or plugins or anything in between. You know, the answer is I don't really feel like I have one other than like a literal computer because mm -hmm. I am someone who believes in not having a crutch. So if I feel like I'm ever rely on something, even when it comes down to a keyboard to write a good piece of music through, you know, computer and software, um, I feel like if I rely on that, then that becomes a weakness of mine. And as a result of that, I've learned that, oh, if I even remove the keyboard from my workflow and I try to write a piece of music, I'll write differently. I'll still mm -hmm. write good music. I'll just write notes differently. Mm -hmm. And that can actually be a nice benefit sometimes to getting ideas down. Um, so whether it's the same thing with sounds, like I've learned at Berkeley and just in time how to create sounds from virtually anything. You know, if you take you can kind of take almost any sound and make drums out of it or make a synth out of it because of the way how waveforms operate. So in my heart, you know, I always believe that if you take, if you strip away everything other than the computer, I don't, I think I could still write good music if, if I put my mind to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, you know, another thing that I've heard as I've interviewed comp composers is that the technique is always better than the tools you know you mm -hmm. can you know if you want to write good music you'll write good music no matter how many no matter which doll you have or which sample library you use or anything like that um i think i saw when we had actually begun our chat and we were sorting through our technical difficulties that you had reaper open is that correct i did have reaper open okay because i have actually been hearing a lot of really good things about it and <laughs> i for a number of reasons am actually having to switch to pc um, and so I am going to set up Reaper. So I'm curious, um, what made you choose Reaper? Cause I've actually been geeking oh. out on it lately and, and kind of reading about it. And it looks like a really powerful DAW. So I'm curious what made you choose that over, you know, all the others. So actually, uh, I apologize because I actually don't use Reaper. That's my Reaper is essentially just my, a, a very quick video or audio editing tool that I use at this point And for getting a, you know, a recording up. That's what I use. But today to day, these days, I'm using Ableton. Gotcha. Electronic yeah. production is the ideal software for that. Yeah, um, but I've used better. Reaper. But I've used Reaper in the past. I've used virtually everything under the sun at one point for a software. Um, and uh, Reaper is great. It's very powerful, especially when it comes to third party, you know, open source tools. Um, a lot of my friends who use Reaper are very deep into that stuff and really personalize their own DAW, like the way how they want to maximize their workflow. Mm -hmm. For me, whenever I do a, like sound design, um, I'll use Reaper because I think, aside from Pro Tools, I think it's the bar none the best um, audio editing for that context. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to digging into it. And I've used Ableton as well, and Ableton is fantastic. And it's really unparalleled when it comes to electronic music. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I, I saw a poll recently. Uh, I don't know if it was Sound on Sound or some some website did a, an updated poll, and more people um, are switching to Ableton. Not just electronic musicians, but um, a lot of composers, producers, art, and sound designers are switching to Ableton. So I think that's super interesting, especially on the um, hmm. you know in the aftermath of the new release of Ten. I I, I would suspect that I think and. I think that's not, I think people are switching, but I also would like to believe 
that it's because uh, kind of back to an earlier point about, you know, a new generation of composers. There's just so many more electronic producers that you find out in interviews, they were heavily inspired by game music when it comes mm. to their dance music. And I think that is becoming a bigger reason of electronic producers using that now as a gate. They're a lot of electronic, they're basically becoming a gateway. They're going from electronic music now into game audio. And a lot of my friends who are producers are slowly going into that direction, which I think is really cool. How do you typically start? How do you get your creative juices flowing? Like, how do you get inspiration going? Can you walk me through your process? Sure. Well, in terms of the framework, the very first thing I do is set up markers. I do not like I do not like to start writing any music until I know where my song starts, where's it end, like how long the song. I I like to fill out like sections even so I know okay before I write anything I know I want an intro that's eight bars I know I want a verse that's sixteen bars so on and so forth mm. because nothing sucks more for me at least than not knowing what to write next and if I know I have a section. And I can change it later because it's just markers. At least sure. I know what I I have a plan. There is sure. a plan to do something. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's so the first thing is always asking a developer how long do you want the song to be? Ideally, usually they'll say, oh, it's two minutes or three minutes, or whatever. But if I have full control over that length and it's up to me, I try to aim for the two three minute mark. I I really don't like to go over. Honestly, I don't like to go into four minute territory mm-hmm. because I like my uh, compositional style is. I like to have lots of different ideas and I don't want things to ever feel repetitive um, or at least I'm padding out for time. So gotcha. Um, so for me, it's always like, okay, here's my three minute mark. And it's kind of just then just a kind of like a block puzzle of like, well, if I make this eight bars, then that has to make this 16 bars or else I'll go too long. Sure, like it's, sure, it's, sure. Kind of, it's like, it's a balance. Yeah. It's like a balance sheet, you know, mm-hmm. that's really cool. That's really interesting. And that's, strangely comforting you know when i think about composing that way because it can be very intimidating when you just sort of write straight ahead so to speak without actually like with no end in sight oh yeah um that can be kind of scary so i think i think that's a great tip and i I might actually try that next time so anyway so you set up your markers and what do you usually do next it honestly varies because i would say if i had to boil it down i try to think about the first real compositional thing I write is what is the climax of this piece? What is this leading all up to? Mm. And if that part sucks, then the whole thing crumbles in my mind. Sure. So, so my first thing is really either starting the build up to the climax or it's starting at the climax. And that kind of gives me a real creative framework of, okay, if this is the climax and it feels like this, then what does everything lead up before before it? What does everything sound like after it? And so on and so forth. And that's probably the ballpark. Sometimes the climax is a drop of a song if I'm doing a remix. Sometimes it's just a chorus and it's, you know, who knows what. But it's always about, it's always about for me, moments. And I want my, the moments that I care about to also make the listener care about. Do you have any particular synths or tools that you're super comfortable with that you kind of reach for first whenever you're you're starting a track? Yeah, I, I pretty much abuse uh, Serum. I think it's an incredible wavetable synth and it nice. has a lot of diversity. That's pretty much the only uh, musical synth that I use. Um, and then in terms of effects, it's a wide variety of things. And I'm not a wide variety of things because I've... I have little problem using stock Ableton compressor. I have no problem, you know, using like EQ8. That's all fine with me because I can sure. get to sound good anyway. Yeah. It um, does. 
yeah, there's a little, there's little things here and there too that help along the way, but for the most part, the the constant is pretty much uh, serum. So, in your workflow, how much of your work would you say is composition, like pure composition in the in the strict sense, uh, sound design? Because I know that's a huge factor in in electronic music arrangement and mixing like what's what's usually the breakdown where do you find yourself spending the most time when you're when you're creating your tracks um i think so it's a weird question to answer because in my mind especially electronic music sound design and composition are kind of one the same because mm. a good sound used horribly is a horrible sound sure you know, a, yeah you yeah. know yeah so absolutely. You know, when, when someone says, oh, this is a terrible sound, I think that's just because you didn't find the right context of how to write with it. So it's, that's kind of a cheating answer for you. But I, I think ultimately I am primarily composition focused, but I always want to make sure that whatever sound design I do, that it is unique to the track and gives it life because I never want, I always want someone at, at some point in the song, I want someone to feel like, oh, that was a cool sound. Because at least then there's just something about that stands out and just gives one an impression. I don't want them to think like, oh, yeah, it's a standard track with the standard ensemble of instruments that you always are here to expect. I don't like that. So switching gears a little bit to kind of the fundamentals of composition and sort of how you've got to the point you are today as a composer. If uh, a hypothetical question, um, if someone gave you a million dollars to train <laughs> someone on how to compose music in one month. So you had all this time and all the resources at your disposal to take mm -hmm. maybe a very uh, a beginner and take them to the point of a competent composer. What would you teach them? Where would you start? You know, how would you teach someone to compose music? First thing I would do, and it may not be the most maximizing of a million dollars, but honestly, I would sit down with a student and I would train their ear. I would sit at a piano and I'd say, all right, let's let's start listening to the piano. Like without looking, I want you to tell me what note this is. I want you to tell me what chord this is. Or all right, we're gonna pull up a synth, and I'm gonna tell you this waveform. What is this synth? What is the waveform of the synth? Mm -hmm. And eventually, get to a point where someone's ears are so good that when they can think of something, they can create it. Yeah, that's the. I think that's the secret to to being a good creator. Is it because every story I've heard of a creator is, oh, I have this great idea, and then I try to make it, and it sounds awful. And it's not because it's awful idea. It's because you just haven't, you may not know the answer nor the skill to create the idea yet. And that is something I always never want to happen to me. And when I do, I always want to find that answer. So I think the ears are the most important thing for any creator, period. And that's so interesting because I've heard people say ear training, ear training, ear training. Um, but usually what they mean is they mean kind of the first thing you said, just like identifying intervals and identifying certain chord uh relationships and cadences and stuff like that but i thought it was so cool that you said also synths so like is this a sawtooth wave is this a sine wave you know that sort of thing because i think as you move into your genre or your the, the genre of music you like making it's super important to know the difference between a square wave and a pulse wave and you know what an lfo does and all that stuff because that's like a whole new layer of composition so i think it's really cool to think about training your ear in synthesis in some ways, I, I would argue it's even more important than maybe actual notes because, mm. you know, if you're working in a DAW, you're working with digital sound. And I would think that any 
composer working in digital sound needs to understand digital sound. Even if you know, oh, that's a sample, even if you know that's a violin sound, I think someone should be able to recognize with enough skill, oh, that violin is using, or not using this sample library, but I understand this is a, from a sampler. I understand maybe, oh, I can hear like the round robin. I can hear the way it's looped or whatever it is. Um, you know, maybe a sample is a bad way of putting at it, but you know, everything is made up of these digital theoretical waveforms. Sure. And, it, and when you come, when you really break it down. And so having a really good grasp on that just puts you leaps and bounds. You don't even think about notes anymore. You think about sounds. Sure. For sure. Back to the hypothetical scenario, what do you think you would do next after the ear training? After ear training, um, I think then once once I have a, a good grasp of ears, then I probably would go to composition. And I think the best way of looking at it is what is, based on the music that that person likes or listens to, I want them, we're going to sit down and listen to their favorite music. And I want them to think about, okay, what are your, what's your favorite moment of this song? Like what, what makes you the happiest or whatever, whatever, whatever just gives you the, the biggest response. Okay. Then we'll listen to another song, do the same thing. And then essentially you, what you end up with over time is you have a, there's a kind of a library or collection of little moments that are like your favorite. Mm -hmm. And we take those moments and then we try to recreate them. And basically that in my mind becomes an artist's sound because if you if you know how to if you know what your favorite moments of music are and then you know how to create them and now you have a whole collection of them that you put in your song that becomes your identity that's you and sure. when you're excited about the song that you're writing and it's shown in the music you're writing i believe that people will also be excited so i'm curious um what's one thing that you've seen novices or beginner composers focus on that's a waste of time. And I think you've been, I definitely think you've been in the industry long enough hmm. to be seasoned, I would say, enough to sort of look at some of the beginner composers and the novices and sort of see some of the, maybe the bad habits or the things they focus on. That's not really what they should be focusing on. Have you, have you seen that at all? I think the biggest one, if I had to pick one is composers, uh, actually, well, if I had to pick one, I think the biggest one is composers stress about writing the perfect song and not finishing something because they want to write the perfect song. Gotcha. Um, I think it takes, I think it takes practice to learn how to finish a song. It's, I think it takes practice to learn how to finish songs that maybe you're not even that fond of. Sure. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing for any composer that's starting out that they should learn how to finish songs and get over the idea that they need to make a perfect song for aspiring composers who haven't gotten their first gig they're trying to get over that hump of the first gig what are what's some advice you would you would uh lend to them for for nailing that first gig and hopefully getting their foot in the door in game audio i think in terms of just getting that first gig um i think it all comes down i think the best way of doing it is honestly getting involved in a community of a game that you like um one that at least allows for you know, community interaction, whether it's through mods or fan mm -hmm. games, or if they have like a, like a community component, because that I think is the easiest way to get into an opportunity. And then once you actually have something to show, like even, even it's a fan game that never even comes out. Um, like at least then you have a something to show to a developer. 
here's what my song sounds like in a game. And often, and that's the biggest hump I think a lot of producers or any composer needs to get out or needs to solve is because even if they have all this great music and they even write this album of theoretical game music, a game developer wants to see what that sounds like in an actual game context most of the time. So sure. I think that's that's the trick is just having that audio visual thing. It could be a fan game, a mod, it could be something, whatever. It could even be as simple as, you know, the mock-ups that a lot of people I think suggest is like, oh, you take a, you know, a video clip of a game you like and then scoring over that picture. That's also a good way because I think that's just the trick to get to the real thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate all the insight that you've shared. I think that there have been some really, really incredible takeaways that anyone who listens to this is going to take away. And uh, <laughs> I think that, uh, I think that, um, yeah, man, you've offered a lot of value here. So I really appreciate it. Uh, just to, just to close this out, um, uh, if people want to learn more about you and listen to your music, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, I well, I think the best place to check me out is either on Spotify for my uh, remixes or original dance music. Uh, you can always go to SoundCloud to find other originals there. My website also includes more of my game-centric work as well, so it's kind of scattered all over the place. But if you find me. If you find me at the very least at jameslandino.com, you can find all the stuff or at least links to other places where you can hear more music of mine. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, James. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. You got it, dude.